The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Two years ago, I was asked to write about my personal relationship to knitting and crafting. I automatically thought of my grandmother who did all things crochet, knitting, needlepoint. So many of us with Jamaican mothers and grandmothers grew up around these crafting practices that are thought of as mundane, but actually come from a rich tradition of Caribbean women's ingenuity and resourcefulness. As I explored these Caribbean crafting traditions further, I discovered a tree that I had never heard about before and yet seemed to be an important part of this story. This is Black Material Geographies, a show that explores the stories behind forgotten fibers and the fabrics you think you know all too well. I'm your host, Teju Adisa Farrar, speaking to you from the unceded territory of the Ohlone people. Jamaica is known as the land of wood and water for its rainforests full of trees, its many rivers and streams connecting to miles of coastlines with black and white sand beaches. Cockpit country is in Trelawney in northwestern Jamaica. It is a hilly and dense area with the highest diversity of plants and limestone deposits. It is home to the largest remaining forest in the country as well as bauxite, a sedimentary rock that is the main source of the world's aluminum. For this reason, cockpit country is crucial to Jamaica's ecosystem and also under threat of deforestation due to mining. Cockpit country is also home to the Akapong Maroons, who are the stewards of the biodiversity there and have retained many West African traditions among the thousands of species and plants in cockpit country is the lacebark tree. But what does this have to do with crafting or my grandmother? I was in the archive and I came across this reference. The story goes that there was this European man, he was traveling in Jamaica and he saw this black woman, beautiful woman. She was gorgeous. You know, from looking at her from a distance, he said, well, there's something interesting about this woman. And she was traveling. She was riding a donkey and she had a veil over her face. And I was intrigued by that. Steve Buckridge is a professor of African-Caribbean history at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. His work focuses on material culture how and why certain cultural characteristics were maintained, nurtured, and passed down to descendants. And so then he got closer to her. And then as he got closer, he realized, mm, this is not a typical lace veil. It's an unusual kind of veil. And so then he realized after talking to her that this is something that came from the bark of a tree. When I read that, I was stunned because 
Growing up in Jamaica, did you? I've never heard of Lace Park. My parents had never heard of it. It's not taught in schools. Nobody had heard of Lace Park. It wasn't even in Google. You couldn't look it up. There was nothing about Lace Park. Like Steve, as a proud Jamaican American, I had never heard about Lace Park either until I sat down to write an essay about my grandmother and the legacy of Jamaican women being so crafty. I didn't find much information on it besides a book by Steve and a couple of articles. But as I was doing research, it seemed apparent this tree was the beginning of Jamaican women's crafting traditions. It's a lost art form. It's part of Jamaica's history, which sadly no one knows about. And the thing is, for so many years, everyone was under the impression that the tree had become extinct. The Tainos, part of the Ararat tribes, were the first inhabitants of the island now known as Jamaica. For centuries, the Tainos harvested plants for medicine, caught fish, picked fruits, slept in hammocks, and used canoes to traverse Jamaica's many rivers and streams. When Columbus set foot on Jamaica in 1494 searching for gold, there were about 60,000 Tainos. The Spanish enslaved the Tainos as well as gave them European diseases leading to the decimation of the population within a couple of centuries. The first capital of Jamaica was called Spanish Town in St. Catherine's Parish. Spanish Town is where my grandmother's house is, where I spent so much time as a child chasing chickens, eating mangoes from the tree in the yard, and getting into all kinds of shenanigans with my brother. As the Taino population dwindled, the Spanish began importing West Africans and enslaving them. In 1655, the British captured Jamaica from the Spanish, and it remained a British colony until 1962. The British also continued to import slaves and enslave them on plantations across the island. When slaves were brought to Jamaica, right, during the early days, you had slave owners who would distribute clothing to the slaves. And at first they would give them ready-made clothing. That's taunting schools are very typical. But that over time, all right, throughout the British Caribbean, as the slave population grew, then they realized that they could no longer give out just ready-made clothes. It was too expensive. So then slave owners started to distribute textile. And the number one textile they gave was called Osnaburg, which comes from Osnabrück, a place in Germany. As a coarse kind of fabric that you put it on to do, and it, it makes your skin scratch. Or you have to work it out, all right? So anyway, what happened is that they would distribute this, but this was the problem. The thing was that, you know, if you think about the plantation concept, the idea was that men made better slaves. And so men's labor was more valued than women's labor. And so men were oftentimes rewarded more than women. And so men received, generally speaking, more clothing and more textiles. So it meant that women had a great need. And overall, slaves only got about enough fabric to make two suits per year. And if you can imagine you're working in the fields, that's not enough. It meant that women had a couple options. They could either steal to have extra clothes, which some did. It meant that they could obtain extra clothing in exchange for sexual favors with enslavers, with white men. 
And some women would save up money from selling their produce, so they'd be their yams and whatever they could grow in the little pot, and they would take it to market when they got permission, and they would sell it, and then the money they got, they would save it up and they would buy some textiles. But the other option, which is what I, what I focus on, is that some women turn to their environment, they turn to the rainforest, and they look for trees, and some of them got the knowledge of trees from the indigenous people, from the Tainas, and they built on it. By a process of trial and error, that's how we have Lace Spark emerging. Generations later, it is Jamaican women who have continued building on this knowledge, like my grandmother, as well as the mother and grandmother of artist Nadine Hall. My influence started with my mother, who was a dressmaker. And I would see her fold yards of fabric, put them on the table, and then in the morning I would get up and I see a garment, and I thought that was just magical. As a five-year-old growing up, I did not know that the, the garment was actually in the plain piece of fabric, and I decided that I wanted to do what she was doing. And I wanted to make magic just like her with, with fibers and textiles and create clothes. Nadine's grandmother followed the legacy of many Jamaican women whose livelihoods are directly intertwined with their environment. With my great-grandmother, who was this, this force of nature. She was a farmer and an entrepreneur, but it wasn't even considered as entrepreneurship. What she did, she grew tobacco and turmeric and, you know, cash crops. And um, she rolled her tobacco, she smoked it. <laughs> and she rode an ass to her farm. And she had a shop where she got pastries from a famous bakery in Portland. And um, she sold those pastries. We have this wonderful foundation of strength and resilience and ingenuity that, you know, how dare me not to continue this legacy that's not just been working class women's work. It's about how they're able to maintain families and still keep an identity. And they did these things as means of survival, not knowing that these were like art forms and they were um, pioneers. In the history of Lacepark, we can see the thread of resilience and innovation despite the violence and trauma of enslavement and colonization. It is women who turned survival into beauty through intimate interactions with the plants around them. I like to say that our ancestors dared to survive in spite of the brutality of enslavement. And so in the midst of all of this, Lacepark was a key, key component of this whole process, especially in the lives of Black women, slave women in Jamaica. You know, in my own work, right, I talk about material culture, I talk about dress, but I focus a lot on, on women. And I was just stunned. Just as Caribbean women are often forgotten as pioneers of material culture and aesthetics, the lace bark tree was forgotten in the rich history of Jamaican crafting traditions. 
Luckily for me, Steve was on a mission to learn as much as he could about this tree. Now, when I started the research in the 1990s, I went to Hispaniola. There, scientists told me the tree was wiped out. That's what they claim. I don't believe them. I think we might still have a few trees left. But scientists, government scientists, they believe the tree was wiped out. When I did research on this in Cuba, the records were very scanty. In Cuba, they believe that they might have a few trees left, but they don't know. It's not clear. Huge numbers of lace bark trees were lost to deforestation, urban sprawl, and overuse due to a lack of government regulation and environmental protections. In 1906, the colonial Jamaican government believed there were only 12 lace bark trees left. And I was determined that I was going to prove them wrong. What makes Jamaica stand out is that Jamaica had entire forests, huge forests of lace bark trees. And Jamaica was the place where a vibrant clothing industry developed in lace bark, where it was most vibrant. Jamaican women have always loved fashion and made this a quintessential part of Caribbean cultural expression, even in the midst of trauma and struggle. My grandmother was no exception. While I was back in Jamaica for the holidays, my mom showed me several doilies, tablecloths, and other things my grandma made over the years. Growing up, I always knew that beauty was important to me. Uh, and she sewed. She sewed some of her clothes. I forget that too. And she had a lot of clothes that she had made as well, because mm -hmm. I have some of those clothes. Right. So we always had a dressmaker because she was very clear. She didn't want to look like anybody else. She didn't like these mass-produced clothes where everybody had the same thing. So we always had a dressmaker. And our good church clothes or going-out clothes were never store-bought. It was always a dressmaker who made them to fit us and the style that she came up with or that she saw and liked and had made. So, yeah, that, that was who she was. Did you think of Mummy as an artist when you were growing up? I think I, I, I kind of knew because here's the thing I remember. This is so vivid in my memory. Mummy didn't believe in cutting down Christmas tree. She used to kiss her teeth and say, that's a waste of time. Why are we doing that? And I remember because we lived in Caymanus where there was forest area. One Christmas, all of us trekking in the woods with her and she finding what she thought was the perfect tree that was dead or limb. And then she took it home and she sprayed it silver. Um, it had branches on it and she put it in a nice pot and then she put the curtain, the Christmas bulbs on it, some of which she made from crochet. Your auntie has some of those and your auntie made some of those and some of the regular glass bulbs that we bought. So I think in those instances, that I thought of her as an artist. Uh, I remember people always admire, she used to make wine before Jamaicans were making local wine. She would make rice wine, civil orange make wine. She was just creative and inventive. Jamaican women are central to the cultural production on the island, even though people often think of male reggae singers when thinking of Jamaica. The women have always passed down creativity, even in the midst of immense struggle. It seems that Jamaicans in general, and Jamaican women in particular, go through a great deal of trauma and suffering. There's a word in Jamaican Patois called sufferation. This word tries to capture the sense of living in continuous struggle. 
Hopefully, over generations, we can find ways to heal from this trauma and allow it to propel us. Nadine's art is the epitome of this. My mother, you know, just the quintessential narrative of so many of us, you know, teenage pregnancy and then for some people, they get some form of reprieve, but for some, it's just a continuous life of, you know, hardship and that continuous cycle. And so I thought that my mother was so special and she was so beautiful and she was so talented that I was like, wow, (laughs) nobody was praising her for this work that she was doing because she was just a dressmaker. But I was like, wow, this is this is great. And then as a child, I was I used to watch a lot of TV and I see fashion shows and costumes in these um, musicals and those were garments. And I was like, oh. I can learn the gift, the skill from my mother and then elevate to that status. I must elevate her gift. I've given myself the mandate that I will reach places that they were not able to reach. But I'm still using those tools that they provided to get to that place. As Black people, we have been and are often stripped of our value. So we use creativity and some might say otherworldly ways of reclaiming our value. As Black people in the diaspora, sometimes we cannot pinpoint specifically where our ancestral knowledge comes from or why certain art and culture is important to our identity. However, in this case, Lacepark gives us a glimpse into one of the many legacies that make us who we are. So we owe it to ourselves to find out as much as possible about this tree that somehow feels sacred. So basically what I did was that I got an expedition together. We went to Maroon Town, spoke with the Maroons, even the Maroons the generation there now, uh, they weren't even sure how many lace bar trees or even if the lace bar trees still existed. And so in the 1990s, I interviewed uh, a group of maroon elders in a kampung town. And these were elderly women who remembered their grandmothers and great-grandmothers who used to make lace bark. And did you, I was stunned by that. I just said, how come we're not talking about this? The lace bark tree and the natural lace Jamaican woman crafted from it is one of the fiber stories that we have forgotten or have forgotten to tell. In my mother's home in Jamaica, she has an altar to my grandmother, Catherine Palmer, so that we never forget what she's done and we never forget to tell the stories of her either. So when I was growing up, my mother was always doing something with her hands. Baking, cooking, crocheting, knitting, you name it, she did it. And she taught us. She, I remember she teaching us how to hem, how to sew on a button, how to embroider our names on our handkerchiefs, because back then we had the handkerchiefs. And a lot of the artwork in our house, she made like in front, and we're looking at this peacock. And I remember she even needlepoint our initials, not our names, our initials, on our pillowcases. <laughs> I mean, so it was everywhere. And then every structure <laughs> had on one of Mummy's crochet. I 
and she made different colors for different seasons. And she crocheted. She had many different crochet books with different patterns. And she also taught my sister and I, and many people in the neighborhood, many other women would come over in the evening and sit on the veranda. And mommy would teach them the crochet. She would teach them to bake. She would teach them the needlepoint. She would teach them to knit. She would knit sweaters and booties and little things for babies and all of that. So look at this one. This one is like an oval shape and then there's a square. I mean, the pattern and the intricacy is just, now that I think about it and I'm looking at it, it's so amazing. These are like lace crochet, makes the effect of the lace here. Mummy was very particular. She crocheted these and back then they would use starch. They make starch from cassava and they would be starched and pressed. You would never just wash it. It was a whole ritual. <laughs> That's why I think I never bothered with this stuff because it took so much effort. And then they would starch it and press it or iron it. We used to make rugs from discarded fabric. And mommy used to make them and they were in front of our beds. You know, before you could buy all of these stupid little rugs that don't last, mommy made all of the rugs that we had in the house from discarded top that she would get from the dressmaker or that she had kept from making something herself. So, but dear, she didn't waste a thing. She was definitely resourceful, definitely into beauty. I didn't know when I agreed to write an essay on my grandma a couple years ago that it would lead me into an ecological adventure searching for a magical tree from which enslaved women made lace. But actually, it makes sense. Whenever we look back far enough into the origins of what makes up our material life, we find plants, trees, and rocks. Because everything starts with the earth, the dirt, the ocean, the plants. So, whatever happened to the lace bark tree? Well, next time we'll find out. <sighs> it's time for the wind down. I invite you to take a deep breath and stretch your body. Release tension in your shoulders, jaw, neck. Taking a moment to reflect on and process our journey today to Jamaica. Our journey of finding a sacred tree. Our journey of honoring the brilliance of enslaved African women and the Jamaican women who follow in their footsteps today we took a journey, so let's just sit in that feeling for a few moments. I invite you to take a deep breath and thank yourself for listening to something new today. I invite you to take a deep breath and imagine being in a forest in cockpit country, surrounded by thousands of species of trees, millions of shades of green, listening to a cacophony of birds with an ocean breeze. Just take it all in. Thank you for spending time in Jamaica with me. Thank you for caring about a magical tree. 
Thank you for listening, learning, and experiencing the material geographies that we are all made of. You can subscribe to Black Material Geographies anywhere you get your podcasts. Black Material Geographies is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. This podcast is a team effort. Thank you to the Black Material Geographies team, my producer, Tiffany Roger, audio editor, Ray Royal, music by Philip Kalechi Namdi Iro, researcher, Haven Obasalase, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcasts, Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Kotolchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amelisa Yuting Ko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. Dot com.